does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Uh, joining us now on the program, and I'm sure, th- I'm sure thrilled to be doing so, Tony East from SI Forbes, amongst many other places. Tony, trade deadline. we got two hours left. We have talked a lot about Buddy Heald, so we will table that and get to that. Do you believe in the next two hours that Kevin Pritchard is going to make another deal? Uh, I would say likely no, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they think of Marcus Morris and Furkan Korkmaz, which is why it's hard to – truly say since they could i guess send them away but uh you know outside of maybe doing something in the front court you know they did the thing that was the most discussed at this point that and so let's go to that okay and and i'll get to obi Toppin in a second but we'll go back to buddy heel then um this move to me tony well my my thoughts on it I've shared, and we'll go back to that. You tell me right now. Your reaction, Buddy Heald on his way to Philadelphia. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all, right? Like I've talked about in the last couple of days that I thought the most likely player to be moved would be Buddy this week just because of unrestricted free agency and what happened last summer, right? We This really came to be in September when, you know, all the reports came out and then confirmed by – you know, the team and Buddy Hill, they talked about an extension. And that means the Pacers at the time, you know, clearly wanted to have Buddy Hill on their team. But if Buddy Hill did not like the offer to the point that the Pacers said, we need to consider trading him, you know, that probably means they're pretty far apart in those talks. And I don't know if anything could have changed this season, but if the Pacers had a pretty good sense, they weren't going to be able to keep him. And he's an unrestricted free agent. Trading him does make sense. It made a little less sense. After they acquired Pascal Siakam, you know, now they're going for it. They're trying to win this season. But if you can move a guy for value, you have to think about it. So I'm not, I wasn't surprised at all. I thought maybe they would try to get someone who could contribute a little bit more this season, but that best pick they got is pretty good. Maybe Cork or Morris will play. I don't know. So um, maybe there's more to this. We'll see. But as of now, it's not surprising to me. I think it makes a ton of sense given everything we've kind of heard the last six months. Pacers beat writer for Locked On Pacers, Tony East, is our guest. Tony, walk us through the cap situation for the Pacers this offseason if there's no other moves and the roster plays out as it is. Pascal Siakam, let's play in this scenario, re-signs with the Pacers. Tyrese Halliburton's massive extension kicks in. In order to add a third piece, would they have to gut the roster? Or how creative would they have to be to add a third piece externally in the offseason? It has to be a trade still. I mean, Buddy, Buddy going away, I mean, does change their cap hold situation. But if Siakam's re-signed with Albert on his money, they're going to be over the cap pretty much no matter what. So the next steps for them would be, you know, either re-signing someone like Morris or Korkmaz or doing a sign-in trade or... If they can't find that, it'd be using the mid-level exception. That's kind of why I thought, you know, trading Hill for someone else in his salary slot, which they did with Morris, is kind of important. We'll see if that turns into anything else. But, uh, the, the, you know, the, because they're over the cap, adding more talent requires a pretty significant trade. And so I think that, you know, their, their cap situation is pretty similar to what it was before the trade, just because Korkmaz and Morris both expire after the season. And now they have this pick 36, which – 
is a pretty good pick, and in theory will take up some money on their cap sheet as well next season. So in other words, for them to add, I don't know if they could add a third max, but for them to add a big money, high-level contributor next year, it would have to be done via trade, and salary salaries would have to match. Ergo, you would have to not you have to gut the roster to some extent. You have to give up pieces that you probably wouldn't want to give up because all the salaries would have to match to bring in a third star. Yeah, for a star, that's certainly the case, right? Like they'll probably be far enough from the tax to use if Yield is gone, which he is now. Uh, the non-tax pyramid level exception, which can get you like a pretty good player, you know, like. Grant Williams got a lot of that last summer. Dante DiVincenzo, you know, that level of player, a, a solid bench guy, maybe your worst starter to be available for that mid-level exception. But if they're getting a third star in July, yeah, oh, yeah, it's going to be a trade. There's no way they're going to have actual cap room or flexibility to do that with a signing. You know, Tony, every once in a while a player comes over in a trade – and you say, hey, you know what? Like, I think this is a guy that they might have unearthed a little bit and he can give them some stuff and they'll assess it. And then that guy never sees the floor. Daniel Tice comes to mind. Like, I really did think that Daniel Tice was a throw-in guy that they were going to be able to kind of get some stuff out of. Never, you know, never happened. Injuries were a part of it. I get it. Then you have guys that come in and you're like, oh, wow. I don't even know that they thought that that this guy had this in him and they get rejuvenated a little bit. Any chance that we see that in that either of those these two guys fits either of those two roles? Uh, you know, interestingly, I, I don't. I have never really thought Marcus Morris was particularly good. Like, I'm surprised he plays as much as he does this year. Korkmaz at his best is you know, he's tough. Like, he's got a lot of the Euro toughness from overseas, and he can. He at his best, he's been a good shooter. He's been over forty percent before. He was at thirty nine percent last year, uh, and a couple years ago at least before. Um, you know, the Sixers kind of retooled their team and traded Ben Simmons. He played a lot. Like, he played 20-plus minutes a game and was taking five threes a night and hitting, you know, above league average of them. His career percentage isn't particularly flashy. He doesn't play that much this season. He's only averaging, like, nine minutes a game. But I wonder on a Pacers team that is going to allow him to shoot every time he's open, if he can at least be, like, an interesting 10th guy some nights, you know, in the regular season, just a guy that can come in, take three threes, make one or two of them, Give you some toughness on the wing. I don't think he's a good defender, but he definitely tries. So I think he's the more interesting one of the two to me at six foot seven. Marcus Morris obviously gives a ton of toughness if he plays. I mean, I think this season people remember he had that nasty elbow onto Jalen Smith. Uh, I think it was the in-season tournament game in Philadelphia. It might have been the game right before it, but he, you know, he's been pretty slow the last couple of years of his career. His field goal percentage now the last three seasons has been like 43, 42-ish. So his contributions are, are certainly lower. Uh, he's playing a lot less this year than he did last year with the Clippers. So uh, I, I think if the of those two categories, I would say Korkmaz, I would think would be more likely to be the surprising good and Morris on the, the other end of that. But honestly, there's a chance neither of them play at all, given kind of what the Pacers roster looks like right now. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Do you believe, Tony East, that this move of sending Buddy Heald to Philadelphia was done 
obviously we know the financials of it, okay? But the, this is this the Pacers saying we need and want to see more of Benedict Matherin before we know exactly and are able to exactly assess what he is moving forward? Or is it more them saying we've seen enough from Benedict Matherin and we're ready to hand him the keys to, at the very least, that number three role? I don't think Matherin is a non-factor in this, but like you know, they could have just played him more anyway. Even if Field was on the team, like in their game on Sunday in Charlotte, when they were fully healthy before Matherin got this stomach bug, you know, but what did Buddy Hield play eleven minutes or something like that? Like clearly, they were already kind of shifting towards a smaller role for Buddy Hield, and Matherin played a decent amount in that game. And was decent off the bench, right? So I think they could have just done that anyway. But that second part where they feel pretty good about it, you know, he's he's been up and down this season, certainly, but I think he's made strides they're comfortable with, and he can defend better than he did last year. He's a better shooter than he was last year. Like, I think they feel good about that, and that is certainly a part of it. But I kind of think this trade is just as kind of boring as the, this thesis can be, really financially motivated, right? When you have a guy on an expiring contract, you have to think about their future. And I'll never forget Rick Carlisle saying last year, you know, they did the extension with Miles Turner in late – January and then before the deadline he said something to the effect of you know the deadline could be quiet for us it would have been different if we weren't able to work something out with Miles right and so clearly like that's a factor in their thinking it has to be for basically any non-title contending team and you know if you can get three picks even if one of them's great and two are mediocre uh, and maybe a contributor for the rest of the season you think about that uh Matherin again a factor because I think he can fill all of Buddy's role but uh, I think they could have just filled that role with them anyway without a trade. So I think most of it is based on what they were actually able to get in return. Tony East is our guest, covers the Pacers for Locked on Pacers. You can subscribe to his content all season long wherever you get your podcasts and, of course, get it a number of different outlets as well. Tony, you and I talked about this off-air earlier in the week, but it looked like that where their roster was, they might not want to shake the boat and make a trade just for the sake of making a trade. There's clearly good chemistry within this team. Buddy Heal is somebody that everybody likes in that locker room. You just acquired Siaka. Maybe you want to see what this thing is. From a Pacers standpoint, how difficult or how will things change from a depth standpoint, from a goals this season standpoint, change by shipping off Buddy Heald and, and adding a guy like Marcus Morris? Yeah, that's one of the more interesting parts of this is what what are the, you know, how does this change the expectations in gold to the Pacers, at least to me, because, you know, clearly if you trade for Pascal Siakam on January, whatever, 18th, you're trying to win right now, right this second. When you trade three first-round picks, your goals change. You're not maybe trying to win the title, but you're trying to win a lot and make the playoffs and maybe win a series. And even if you view Buddy Hield as a negative because he's shooting worse this year and his defense isn't, you know, the best thing ever – the fact that they got assets for him suggests that he has value and can contribute to winning, right? So, in theory, this makes them a little bit worse. But maybe they don't feel that way because of how they can reshuffle their rotation or how some new players can help them. I don't know exactly how that thinking is. But in general, it kind of feels like, you know, a team going for it sent away somebody, right? And so, what happens now if you're the Pacers? Do you have to tell your locker room why you did this? Do you just are, – are you, are you already very comfortable with – playing Ben Shepard a little bit, or, you know, do you have enough depth that, that you don't even need to do that? Is Ben Matherin just going to play more and you're doing a nine-man rotation? I think this actually creates some questions that are really interesting in the context of what the Pacers are and what they're trying to do now. And maybe they really value Morris or Korkmaz as that backup three that they could have. And 
that answers all my questions. But, you know, it's really interesting that a team kind of going for it and wanting to be good. But you know what? We'd rather have the value than Buddy Heald. And I think that's going to be one of the bigger things that I'm curious to, uh, to hear from going forward because he'll put, like in their very last game, Heald played pretty well. And after the game, Tyrese Halliburton said he was very excited to talk about Buddy Heald and the contributions he has to the Pacers. Yesterday at practice, T.J. McConnell was very happy to talk about Buddy Heald and his contributions in gravity for the Pacers. Like His teammates do value the things he provides to the team, and now they don't have those things. So how they plug that hole or how they make little tweaks I think will be fascinating and, and definitely the most interesting immediate ripple of this trade to me. Pacers beat writer Tony East joins us. Tony, this could very well change in the next 90 minutes plus trade deadline coming up at 3 p.m. Eastern time. But is this now, if they stay in pat and don't make any other moves, is this now an audition period for both Obi Toppin and Jalen Smith in terms of deciding which one of them they would like to retain in the offseason? Yeah, they can keep both now. If they you know, if they don't plan on re-signing Morris and Corkmaz, they can afford to keep both and, and stay under the tax. But you know, so perhaps it's not an audition in that way, but perhaps it's an audition for playing time, right? Because at some point the Pacers are presumably going to want to play Jarris Walker, who they picked very high in last year's draft. And so he's coming for one of those front court spots at some point. I just watched him play for the Mad Ends last night. His handle looks better than it did before he was drafted. He had some beautiful passes, right? He, he might, I don't know if he's ready defensively yet, but and he's certainly trending towards a player that they'll have to decide on. So, yeah, I think the rest of the season will be about a lot of evaluation in the front court for the Pacers if they're done because, you know, Siakam's going to play a lot. Neesmith's been wonderful. Turner's a great player. They, they have a lot of guys who are going to soak up minutes in that front court. And now Marcus Morris and Korkmaz, who are both 6'7 plus, are on the team. You know, that suddenly there's a lot going on kind of in the front court. If you're Toppin, if you're Jalen Smith, if you're Isaiah Jackson, any minute you're playing – you're hoping to prove that you belong with this team long-term because there may not be minutes to gain, but there could be, depending on what Smith does with his player option, depending on what Toppin does in free agency. So there's a lot to kind of gain there, and those are the, the interesting players to watch, I think, immediately after the deadline, especially with the buyout market uh, as a thing coming up at the end of this month. Tony, what do you think? Tony East, our guest. If you had to guess. I know you're not an agent, not, nor am I. <laughs> but if you had to guess, what would you say Jalen Smith's annual salary range is going to be requested and that he could actually get on the market, yeah. assuming that he opts out. Yeah, my prediction was just look like looking at last year's market. Like he's not as good as Nas Reed and Nas Reed got his extension at starting at like thirteen million per year, I think it's about fifteen million per year. That's too high. You know, he's not as good as him. Certainly. Some other centers who agreed to deal last summer, Jock Landale got four years thirty two million, but that's like a giant trade exception contract, which is really gimmicky. There's a lot of non-guaranteed stuff in there. Mo Wagner, who actually is pretty good, playing for the Magic, got two years, $16 million. That's $8 million per year. Paul Reed got just under $8 million per year. And those are like good backup centers, right? Paul Reed had an awesome game against the Jazz, starting for the Sixers with Joel Embiid out. Like, he's a good player. So I think – I don't know if he can get to like $12 million, Jalen Smith, but I think he could get to somewhere between 8 and 10 his option's only 5.4, so just looking at the market dynamic, especially if the cap goes up a little bit, my prediction would be somewhere in that 8 to $10 million per year range. I was going to say 8 to 12 right in there, right? I, the thing yeah. is, okay, so that leads to a second question for you, Tony, in your opinion. Let's say that that's the number it creeps into. Let's say he wants a three-year, $30 million deal. Does Indiana jump on that, or does Indiana say, enjoy Phoenix? <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's – uh... I think they'd have to be careful because 
they have Isaiah Jackson, who can is on their team next year. They picked up his option before this season even started. And Isaiah Jackson's restricted after next season. And Isaiah Jackson's played pretty well. So, you know, if Jalen Smith wants to be back, there. I mean, he could just opt in, obviously. But if he really wants to be with the Pacers, you know, there might be some haggling and negotiating there because Pacers have another big man already on their team who can play that spot. And Obi Toppin has played some capable backup emergency five this season as well. So it's not like they wouldn't have a third center if they needed to go that route. So, you know, if, if Jalen Smith wants to be with the Pacers specifically, I'm not sure he could get the high end of his market value. If he wants to, you know, get the most money, maybe. If he wants to go somewhere where he could start, like the Wizards just traded Daniel Gafford. I thought, you know, he could start, like he's from Maryland. He could probably start for the Wizards next season, right? So there's just it, his goals will be the most fascinating part of that to me. But I think if you're the Pacers, because you have Isaiah Jackson already on your team, you're at least trying to negotiate to get something that makes the most sense for you. Tony, for the Pacers, Tyrese Halliburton has made it clear in the past in media availabilities his affinity for Buddy Heald, them being kind of tied at the hip together since they knew each other in Sacramento when Tyrese comes into the league, and then they're obviously a part of the trade that brings them both to Indiana. Maybe I'm being hypersensitive to this, but people look at star players and happiness matters and relationships matter, and yes, it's. I don't think this is going to like He's going to demand a trade or anything like that by any means because of this. I want to stress that on the front end, but most people will say more often than not, you want to try to keep the superstar happy. Are you at all worried about potential ramifications or this being something that needs to be smoothed over on the Pacers end with one of his favorite players being dealt? Or is this just a, eh, he might be upset about it for a minute, but he'll realize in the long run it's part of the business. Yeah, Halliburton just went to bat for him, right? On, on Tuesday night, talking about how valuable Buddy Heald screening and gravity and all, you know, all the threats he puts on defense every possession is to the Pacers, right? And you know that they've been together their entire careers. Tyrese has said on multiple occasions that he knows Buddy Heald better than anyone on the planet, right? And the, the, thing, the part of this that's interesting to me is, yes, I think that obviously they're, they're really good friends, but the Pacers have said before, like, they value Tyrese Halberton's input quite a bit when it comes to the team and what, you know, what, what it's going to look like. And Kevin Pritchard has said, like, I can't put the final decision on the player, but he's going to have info, right? He's the, he's the face of the franchise and that really matters. And so on one hand, yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, no one's getting thrilled that someone they like gets traded away. On the other hand, I can't imagine they didn't communicate with Tyrus Halbert that, that this was an option and could be something that happened. And, you know, maybe, I don't, I don't, again, I don't know this. This is just me thinking out loud because of the question asked. Like, maybe this is something Buddy Heald could have wanted, and then Tyrese was, would be happier to have his friend go somewhere he likes. You know, you just never know with all these dynamics. I think these are questions that need to be asked to figure out everything at play. But I think as you kind of look at it, I don't think they would have done it if Tyrese Halbert said, no, I want Buddy Heald here. So uh, certainly I think a factor, and maybe not something exciting for Tyrese Halbert to not be with his, his friend anymore, but – I don't think they they would do it without considering that and consulting with him first. Tony East is our guest. Tony, before we let you go, any trades elsewhere that jumped out at you? I guess the one, really the only one of local interest, and I don't know how much you've been able to keep track of the rest of the league in terms of trades here as we are almost halfway through between the beginning of our show and the trade deadline coming at 3 o'clock. <laughs> but Gordon Hayward on his way. From yeah. Charlotte now to Oak City. That probably is the one that jumps out from a local interest standpoint. That's an awesome spot for Gordon Hayward, too. He's going to be a really good fit for that team in that rotation, assuming he can stay healthy. Royce O'Neal was connected to, to the Pacers with some reports. He just got traded like uh, 
couple minutes ago. Uh, it sounds like he's going to Phoenix. Uh, but in terms of locally, I think that was – I think the Gordon Hayward run's the only really significant one. I mean, no one else that the Pacers have even really been linked to has been on the move. I think also Bruce Brown uh, is a guy to keep an eye on. Of course, he was with the Pacers earlier this season. He's been in a lot of trade buzz and, and seems like he could be a guy that gets moved today from the Raptors. Well, the Raptors have done – a ton of other stuff today that uh, does not involve a Bruce Brown trade. So uh, I think of Pacers' interest, Royce O'Neal recently was the, the most obvious one, and Hayward, of course, locally is one. But uh, Oladipo got traded last week. Does that count, Jake? Um, Oladipo <laughs> being traded at this point is like <laughs> halfback chips, right? I hate to say that. That's I'm picking on the guy, right? It is weird, isn't it, to think that he's just kind of like a, a not even a trade deadline trade throw-in guy? Yeah, just just salary, right? Like that's all he was. Pretty much, trade. yeah. Makes nine million dollars. What about Andrew Wiggins? Andrew Wiggins is a guy that I think does kind of fit what Indiana could use, and for whatever reason, his minutes and his production have just completely plummeted. And I've heard his name mentioned out there. Do you think Indiana has any interest in Andrew Wiggins? A buy low candidate like that on the wing is very similar to kind of what they did with TJ Warren when they got yeah. free from the Suns, right? So. On one hand, maybe, I mean, at his best, he's awesome. He's an all-star wing. Like, that that doesn't become available that often. On the other hand, I mean, he's he's been bad. Like, he's been bad at basketball this season, you know, especially compared to what you expect from him. His efficiency's not there. His effort on the glass isn't there. His defense is a little worse. And his extension just started, right? So his contract is pretty big. It's not huge, but it's big. So if you can get him with something else or basically for free, like, you have to consider it just because his peak is so high and, you know, rehabbing his value would be a slam dunk if you could pull it off, but it's super risky, right? So uh, I would, they're in town tonight. I mean, I'll be curious what the Warriors are going to do, if anything, today, but uh, that is a fascinating uh, player to watch, I guess. I, it, it's weird for the Pacers now with Buddy Heald traded to, to think of what the salaries could be. So we'll, we'll see on that one. We'll see. How much does Ben Shepard get impacted by all this this season? Big winner today, uh, certainly. Unless unless Corkmaz is the backup three and Matherin's the backup two, I mean Ben Shepard could be playing. Uh, and there, are, I mean, probably tonight with Buddy Hillman on the team, Ben Shepard's playing for sure, right? So, uh, yeah, maybe a big winner. He's been defending well, and you, I've said it to you guys on this show. Like, there's a chance their best defensive five this season has Ben Shepard in it, and so. Uh, if they value that and value playing him a little bit down the stretch of this year, he could be a big winner today. Friendly reminder, if there's any and all mocks that you have out there, you can send them to at Tony R. East. Those trade machines are very valuable. And don't forget about the pencils down, GIF, at 3 o'clock. Tony loves those. Be sure to tag him as well. Oh, lordy. <laughs> Tony, uh, I'm sure we'll have all that content on Locked On Pacers. Looking forward to seeing all of it post-trade deadline, and we'll talk at you next week. Yeah, you got it. Thanks, guys. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Super Bowl upon us. Jimmy has been wearing, and I can't wait for the Super Bowl to end just so Jimmy can change shirts. <laughs> He's been wearing the same chief shirt for three and a half weeks. Matt Verderam of SI is one who will be covering the Super Bowl, joins us on the program. Matt, first off, thanks for joining us. And um, I'll get right to the question that I have, which is this. I keep going back and forth with this game. Schematic advantage, to use the old Charlie Weiss phrase, which of the two teams do you feel like has more versatility in what they can do to create problems for the other? It's a great question. I think 
if you're talking about versatility and just different packages, different formations, stuff like that, I think the 49ers probably have more of that just because, you know, like they play with Juszczyk, and Juszczyk is a versatile piece. He's not really a big yardage eater. I mean, if you look at his yardage polls this year, it's not, nothing special, but he's a really good player. And you can you can use him out wide. You can use him inside. It's almost like a tight end. You can use him, obviously, as a regular position of fullback. And then with Kittle... You know, Kittle very much the same way. Of course, Kittle much more the yardage eater, where you can you can line him up outside, you can line him up in the slot, you can line him up tight, you can you can even put him in the backfield. So, I think the Niners have more ways to line up and to move you around. I would contend that the Chiefs though have the scariest thing that they can do, which is just give the ball to Patrick Mahomes and give him three seconds. Um, and so that's kind of the story of this game. Yeah, the Niners have more weapons, the Chiefs have God. And so how do you contend with that? <laughs> Matt Verderam is our guest. Matt, you know this, our indie listeners know this, but I'm a big Chiefs fan, so there's some bias in this question. But this team, just a couple months ago, loses at Lambeau, then a couple weeks later gets throttled by the Raiders at home. They're dropping passes. They're committing false starts. They look discombobulated completely on offense. And the postseason's arrived. Rasheed Rice has come on for certain for them. Pacheco has been a beast like he was a year ago. And Kelsey's Kelsey, Mahomes is Mahomes. But it looks like they've fixed things offensively. And I know they didn't play up until the Ravens, the 85 Bears from a defensive standpoint with Miami and Buffalo, but when you look at them on tape, what have they fixed offensively, and why, if you're looking at this game, should you not say, well, those drops, those penalties, those shooting yourselves in the foot could reappear in the Super Bowl? Has that been fully put to bed, or could those reappear? I think the most incredible stat of the Chiefs' playoff run to this point if you follow them all year long, as you have, as I have, they have not taken a pre-snap penalty in the playoffs. That is staggering, considering what that team looked like for four months during the regular season, where they couldn't get lined up. I mean, I didn't even know you could line up in the neutral zone on offense until Kadarius Tony showed up and did it. Like That is, that's impossible. The Chiefs lost a game like that. They had so many games this year. Where you're, I mean, you're not talking a few drops. You're talking about six drops, seven drops. Where they just could not catch anything. Leading the league. Yes, all by a mile. Like, not even – in fact, they at least up until the last – I don't know if it changed with all the starters being out, but they had the worst drop percentage since the Browns team that went winless. I mean, it was, it was insane <laughs> watching that team play offense this year. But I think a few things happened. Look – I don't think this is sound the way it's probably going to, but they sat down Kadarius Tony and Sky Moore. You know, Moore went on IR. Tony essentially got benched after that New England game where he dropped another ball to turn to a pick. I think that was part of it. Those two guys were net negatives for them. And they sat they, they sat down, either be injury or just being benched. They, the Chiefs basically said the offense is going to be Pacheco, Kelsey, and Rice. And that's it. And every once in a while, it's going to be Justin Watson. And, and lately, MVS has turned into the guy everybody thought he was going to be all year long, which is who he was last year, that deep ball threat. But I think that's been a lot of it. They've cleaned up the pre-snap penalties. Um, they've just kind of streamlined the offense. And Kelsey's gotten a second wind. It's been a lot of things that you felt like all year long, like, yeah, it'll happen. And then it never happened. And now all of a sudden, it's happening simultaneously. 
Matt Verderam is our guest, covers the NFL for SI. Matt, the 49ers have a collection of playmakers, the likes of which rarely come along within a single season, let alone on the same roster. And Kyle Shanahan, in his own right, is a mastermind in offensive schematics, just like Andy Reid is. Defensively, though, Steve Spagnuolo, I would argue, is an equal in that same air with his defensive concepts and his ability to disguise blitzes and and have different motion at the top with safeties. Two-part question. On Kansas City's side of the ledger, is this the best collection of offensive weapons they've faced all year? And for... San Francisco, is this the best secondary and best collection of defensive weapons their offensive faced all year? And ultimately, what wins out? So I think as far as the Chiefs are concerned and the best teams they've faced, I would say that weapons-wise, it probably is. I mean, they played Minnesota when Minnesota was healthy earlier in the year. You had Jefferson and Addison and Hawkinson and so on and so forth. Um you know, obviously they played Buffalo a couple times, played Baltimore, uh, Jacksonville, who's who's got a lot of weapons. But I think the Niners, in terms of the weaponry, just the skill position players, yeah, I think I think you'd say yes. This is the most talented team that they've played in that regard. Now, it kind of becomes an interesting question if you factor in the quarterback. Like I would argue that the Bills are almost a division rival to the Chiefs at this point. They see each other so much. I think the Bills are a tougher team for Kansas City to defend because of the dual threat that Josh Allen is. The Ravens don't have the skill position players that the Niners have, but Jackson is so unique that it's it's a tough game to deal with defensively because you're taking so many guys out of their normal roles just to deal with Lamar Jackson. On the flip side, for the Niners, I think the only team they've faced they've posed some kind of a threat in the way the Chiefs do is Baltimore. And Baltimore destroyed San Francisco. Absolutely destroyed them. I mean, five interceptions, Purdy had four of them. Um, now, they play differently. The Ravens don't blitz to the extent that the Chiefs do. My feeling on this game is, look, I think the Chiefs are used to playing in these types of games. They played the Eagles last year in the Super Bowl where the Eagles were every bit as loaded right now as the Niners mm-hmm. when you factor in the receivers and tight ends and backs. And they gave up a lot of points in that game. But they found a way to beat them, and they found a way to stop when they needed to. My concern with the Niners, they faced two top five defenses this year, Cleveland and Baltimore, and their offense has gotten completely shut down in both games. That's the problem. If Spags can get Purdy to where he doesn't know what he's looking at, those weapons become irrelevant because they've got to get the ball from Brock Purdy. That is my concern for San Francisco in this game. Matt Verderam of SI is our guest. Matt, you had a piece in SI, and you've had a couple. If you're not going there, you should follow Matt on Twitter, but on SI with plenty of pieces to get you ready for Super Bowl 58. But you had a piece that I've thought about internally watching Mahomes and viewing him as one of the greats that I don't think people are looking at now because they're so focused on the game. But if this goes Kansas City's way, the conversation changes to what your piece was about, which is he's playing for legacy in the same way LeBron James was with Jordan, is with Jordan, right? I I assume at some point there's going to be a press clipping from Mahomes saying he's chasing the ghost of 12, just like James has said the same thing about Jordan a couple of times in his championship runs. What is at stake from a legacy standpoint 
for Patrick Mahomes if, he able to, if he's able to get a third Super Bowl before he turns 29, let alone 30. I, like I wrote in my story, uh, my, my column, I really just think, look, let's be real. Mahomes is the best player in the world right now, period. End of discussion. Like, there's, I know we do this every year in our profession where we sit here and like, well, if Josh Allen beats him in the playoffs this year, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It just doesn't. Josh Allen's not Patrick Mahomes. Joe Burrow, who has been the one guy who's had his number to some extent, is not Mahomes. Like, none of these guys are Mahomes. Mahomes is clear in a way the greatest player of his generation. I mean, you want to sit there and talk about, well, you know, him compared to Aaron Donald. I mean, that's fine. But in terms of just the totality of the sport, he is the best player in this era. And so now it becomes, even already, like, if he loses on Sunday, no reasonable person is going to say, well, that's it then. You know, he's not who we thought he was. Like, it's just it's a missed opportunity for a legacy that he could retire tomorrow, and he is a first ballot Hall of Famer. But – if he wins this game Sunday, then I think the conversation starts to get very real about, okay, he is 28. If he wins, he's a three-time Super Bowl champion. He's a two-time MVP. He's at least a two-time Super Bowl MVP. He's thrown for 5,000 yards twice. He's thrown for 50 touchdowns once. Like, I think you start to get into this, this conversation of, okay, look, does he have to get to seven for people to say he's better or equal to Brady? Does he have to get to five? And whatever that number is, it's reasonable. Like, even if it's seven for people, I think it's reasonable. So, for me, yes, obviously they're playing the San Francisco 49ers this weekend, but for Patrick Mahomes specifically, he is playing for his spot in history. He is trying to rack up as many as he can. And look, I think we all feel like Mahomes is going to have a whole bunch more Super Bowls ahead of him. You don't know that. He might not. Brady went 10 years without winning Super Bowl, went to a few of them, but didn't win for a decade. You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. This is his opportunity right now to get number three. Matt Verderam, our guest. Matt, on the other side of things at the quarterback position, do we have, I mean, obviously this is a first Super Bowl for Brock Purdy, but do we have any sort of a baseline to know whether or not the potential is there that the moment is going to be too big for him? No, it's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, the Super Bowl is something that's so different. And, of course, playing at Iowa State, it wasn't like he played a bunch of you know massive games there. It wasn't in national title games, uh, you know, like a Tua was, you know, for an example, or Deshaun Watson, you know, people like that. It wasn't in those games in college. In the playoffs, to this point, including last season, he's been shaky. I mean, he has not been great in the playoffs. Now, the Eagles game, I don't even count because he barely played. But, like, during these last two weeks, let's be real, he's not played well. I mean, yes, give him credit at the end of the game, and that's fine. Although I would contend the Detroit game was more about Detroit than it was Purdy. I mean, the biggest play that Purdy made all game was to throw the hit of the guy in the face mask on the Lions. Like, it, it was not because Purdy played here. I thought the best plays he made in that game were with his legs. Um, he is going to have to play a really, really good game. Like, this idea, that this narrative that's kind of taken hold about, well, the Niners can just win if McCaffrey is a big day, is, is nonsense. The Bills ran for almost 200 yards, and they didn't win because they couldn't get one explosive play. They didn't have one. Allen threw for 4.8 yards per attempt. It didn't matter. The Niners are not going to shut the Chiefs down in this game. They don't have the secondary to do it. I don't think they've got the pass rush outside of Bosa to do it. Like they're gonna, The Niners are going to need Purdy to play in a way that he has not played over the last you know, month or so. And if he can step up, they have a real shot to win the game. If he can't, and it's McCaffrey and everybody else, 
that's a really, really big ask of your defense in this game against this quarterback. Matt, when you look at Indianapolis and what we assume is going to be their roster next year and you, you kind of compare it through the lens of the offenses that we see at the ultimate level here, Anthony Richardson, I think we know, is a big arm guy and he does have some escapability and leg possibility of extending plays about him can you get away with or be an elite offense when your top playmaker is your quarterback and he is surrounded by receivers that are not necessarily yard after catch guys i don't think you're going to super bowl like that unless you have an absolutely locked down defense and a a ridiculous ground attack which of course the colts do have the ground game um I think when I look at the Colts, obviously the big question is, what is Anthony Richardson? Unfortunately, we didn't really get to find out this year. But I think there's clear potential. And so let's assume that he's a really good quarterback. Um, it, it, to me, then it all becomes about, okay, look, you got the running back. As long as they bring back Pittman, which you would think at minimum they tag him, but they've got to bring him back. They've got to go out and get other guys. Like I'd like to see the Colts. I'll give you an example. Go out and sign Dalton Schultz this year, the tight end. Like go, go get a tight end who can give you 800 yards. Go get, you know, I like Downs a lot. I, I, I think he's going to be a real player in the league. I like him coming out. So I'm at the Senior Bowl. Go get one more receiver. It doesn't have to be Mike Evans. Go get another good receiver. Go get another guy who can hover around the 1,000 yards, who can complement Pittman. And now Downs, all of a sudden, your third receiver. Now you're really giving some teams some problems. And there's a ton of receivers out there this offseason that you could target depending on which way you want to go. So, you know, if I'm if I'm Chris Bauer, if I'm the Colts, my whole thought process is, look, make this kid's life easier. Make his life easier. Go out, whether it's through the draft, through the free, you know, free agency, there's going to be a million quality receivers out there. Go find one. Go pay for one. That's been my biggest problem with Ballard over the years is it feels like they're hesitant sometimes to spend money at these skill positions. Go spend the money. You have the cap space, go use it. Um, I think the Colts are a really interesting team for next year because I, I, I think Steichen's going to be fantastic for them. Um, but they need to build up around that all. They can't just be Pittman and Taylor. That, it's not enough. Lastly, odds that a player in the NFL, whether it's one participating in the Super Bowl or one that is enjoying the Super Bowl in Las Vegas, gets involved in some total dumbassery over the weekend? Hi. Unfortunately, hi. <laughs> My guess is it would not be somebody who plays in the game. Right, like, right. It'll probably be somebody who's there for, like, Radio Row and, like, a bunch of appearances and just decides to, like, hit on 15 at the Bellagio and doesn't win and then things go south. Like, that's, that's We've all been there, right? <laughs> We have all been there, right? The difference is, like, most of us lost, like, 20 bucks, right? And so that's, like, that's the concern. It's a, hey, Vegas is a fun town. It's a great place to be. At the same point, one of those places you need to have self-restraint in, in big supply. And so you just hope you don't have the guy who, like, doesn't have a lot of restraint. All of a sudden you end up, you know, getting, getting that breaking news that somebody got themselves into trouble. Love it. Absolutely love it. I'm, I'm, that's what I'm. I'm putting 15 on that. I'm not putting 15 on on the table. I'm putting 15 on somebody gets arrested. It's a TMZ Super Bowl. You could probably find a prop for that. Honestly, you're Jake. probably right. Yeah, Matt, we appreciate it, man. Ain't no problem. Anytime, guys. All right, always fun. Matt Verderam of SI.